This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, today we are grateful that you've given to us your word. Thank you that we can study it in peace unmolested. We pray that we would be faithful stewards of the gift you've given to us. And as we consider the presuppositions that lead us to different conclusions in the Word of God, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and give us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we talked the last hour about the, uh, the way that revelation inspiration works. So, in that last hour, we looked at how God reveals Himself to prophets. This revelation, the Holy Spirit uh, inspires them with an, not just with a, an experience or an encounter with God, but with knowledge, with uh, an understanding of the will of God. And that Holy Spirit continues to inspire them or to lead them as they speak or write <coughs> what they know for God's people. Um, this understanding of inspiration gives us certain presuppositions. We looked at other competing models. For example, the idea that God dictated every word. Um, and so every word is inerrant and infallible in the Word of God. We don't believe that as Seventh-day Adventists. And um, that verbal inspiration would give us a totally different presupposition as we come to approach Scripture. And one of the things that it does for us, and we'll talk about it more as we go through this um, seminar, this module. Um, one of the things it does is that the inerrant verbal inspiration model leads people to try to see hidden clues in words that the author never meant or understood. And um, it's been remarkable to me how many people can read a passage and find an allegorical or a mystical meaning of the passage which the writer never had in mind. Now, there may be some devotional merit to seeing these allegories or to seeing these comparisons, but that's not an interpretation, a valid interpretation of the passage. It's not what it means. It means what the writers tried to say. And um, so that is one of the ways which I think verbal inspiration gets us sidetracked sometimes. Um, when we when we have a solid foundation for, for Bible study and understanding of how the Bible is given and how it's inspired, it leads us to the correct presuppositions that we approach the Scriptures with. So, um, as we talk about presuppositions, Dr. Frank Hosel, who um, some of you may know of um, Michael Hosel, uh, archaeologist who teaches um, at Southern. This is his father who was the dean of the seminary and a very well-respected, godly Adventist leader. Um, he says it this way, since the method of interpretation is inseparable from its presuppositions, the respective presuppositions invariably influence the outcome. To some extent, at least, the conclusion may be implicit within the methodology. That is to say, there's not a lot of point of us arguing about interpretations if we don't agree on the methodology with which we approach Scripture. 
I've learned this through the years um, trying to speak with people, particularly on the area, in the area of prophetic interpretation. There are many people who want to have a, an argument or discussion with you, convince you of some text, some interpretation, of some passage, or some prophecy. And um, they're well-meaning. I'm not, I'm not here to, to criticize them. But I found that it was virtually useless for me to discuss this point on which we disagreed with them when we didn't agree on the principles with which we interpret the prophecies. It's much better, much more productive, if anything is going to be productive, for us to back up a bit, thank you, for us to back up a bit and to talk about the principles, and maybe we can make some progress then when we go to talk about the specifics. So, this last sentence, to some extent at least, the conclusion may be implicit within the methodology. Really, we could say that the conclusion is implicit in many cases, even within the understanding of revelation inspiration that we talked about in the previous, uh, the previous module. Yeah, depending on your understanding of how the Bible was given and how it was inspired, um, it, it may already be a foregone conclusion the way you're going to read it, the way you're going to interpret it. So, just to um, define a few terms again this hour, presuppositions of the bias or background beliefs that we bring to the study of the Scriptures that influence our interpretation, either consciously or subconsciously. And further, we'll um, go ahead and define here, this time, the term hermeneutics. Um, it's defined or derived from a Greek word that means to interpret or explain. And uh, it simply means the science of correctly understanding the Scriptures, assuming you have correct hermeneutics, <laughs> of observing principles whereby God's Word can be prof uh, correctly and profoundly uh, read. So, those are just two terms that we may use over the next two hours, and I want you to not be intimidated by them or wonder what they mean exactly. That's how I'm using them. Hermeneutics are simply the principles by which we interpret and read the Bible. And presupposition is what we come to that study with. The object of hermeneutics is to determine the thought the biblical writer had in mind and expressed in words under specific circumstances. So we could talk about the need for interpretation. That's really what we want to talk about in the next next hour, but um, I, th I think that uh, it's, it's obvious enough to most of us living this age that we need some interpretation for a book that was written 2,000 years ago in very different culture, very different age, very different writers. Now, we mentioned the hermeneutical spiral, and this is very important, I think, when we talk about the study of the Bible, and we talk about uh, arriving at truth, if there is a arrival, I don't know if there's such a thing. We were always learning, always growing. But the hermeneutical spiral is a term for the experience the Bible student has as he or she studies more and more and exposes his or her mind more and more to the Word of God. The way the student thinks begins to come more and more into harmony the way God thinks. Um, basically, it's like this. We all have a bias, right? We all have presuppositions. We all have baggage, you might say, that we bring to the study of God's Word. There is no such thing as someone who is not biased. But, if we're studying the Word correctly, the Word has preeminence over our ideas, right? And so we are forced to begin changing some of the ways we think. 
some of our worldview gets altered little by little. Um, and I think God wants to alter it as fast as he can, but sometimes we're pretty stubborn folks, you know. And so, um, when we talk about the hermeneutical spiral, the idea is the more we study the Word of God, the more we tend to spend time exposing our minds to the Word of God, the more our biases come into more um, harmony with the way God thinks, the easier it will be for us to understand the meaning of Scripture. Does that make sense? And so we have a, a closer and closer understanding of the Word of God. Our presuppositions and biases must be modified and shaped by the Bible itself. The reading of Scripture reshapes the heart and mind. And so we say the successive exposure to God's Word with its bringing of the mind to ever closer alignment to biblical truth can be likened to a hermeneutical spiral. And so, you know, this is not to say that someone who's just beginning to study, just beginning the Christian walk, can't understand truth, right? It's just sort of like maybe, um, maybe Paul would speak about the graduating from the milk of the Word to the meat of the Word, Right? Um, the more you study, the more you're going to be able to understand things that you didn't understand before. And um, we could say that that is due to the hermeneutical spiral. Now, um, let me see if I can get this. My remote will catch it. There are certain presuppositions that you and I probably approached our Bible study with that we've, all, we've taken for granted. But it's good for us to review them and to recognize them. Um, nowhere in Scripture do the biblical writers attempt to prove the existence of God. That's surprising for some people. You know, we think of the Bible sort of as a, a proof that God exists or whatever, but the Bible doesn't concern itself with an apologetic for the existence of God. It assumes that God exists. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God. There's just the assumption that we believe in a God that um, speaks and acts in human history. And uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about the qualities of God or the nature of God. Um, the Greek dualism philosophy led to an idea of God in the Middle Ages, particularly that was a God that lived in a different um, context Tenuum, you might say, than humanity. God did not inhabit space and time. He's beyond space and time. And um, the things that are beyond space and time are the real things in the Greek understanding. Um, whereas the Bible actually reveals itself as a God who interacts in human space and time. And so while we say God is timeless, the, I think we would be most accurate to say that only in the perspective that God has no beginning and no end. Not that he lives or dwells or exists in a totally different, um, in a totally different uh, continuum than, than we do. So, the first biblical presupposition that we must have is a, a personal God who speaks and acts. Hebrews 11.6 says it this way, those who would come to God must believe that he exists, right? He's a rewarder of those who seek him. So, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Now, I'm going to move rather quickly through this presentation because I want to talk some, even in this hour, on the history of biblical interpretation. That's a, that's a big part of understanding and recognizing different methods of interpretation. So, um, please bear with me. We won't look at a lot of these verses. I'll give you the verses, 
we won't be spending a lot of time turning in our Bibles to them. I hope that's okay. You can look them up afterwards. The second presupposition that we would come to the Bible with is that humanity was created for fellowship with God. Adam and Eve were created in the divine image and capable of responding to God and of entering into a meaningful fellowship with Him. And uh, Scripture depicts God as communicating in human language and humans are portrayed in the Bible as being capable of understanding the messages that God had for them. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God is a God who wants to have fellowship with us? And we were created, in fact, for this fellowship with our Creator. A third presupposition would be that sin really messed things up. So the equipment that we're dealing with now, the, 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 um, the vantage point from which we are studying the Bible is not the vantage point which God originally created for us to be able to understand divine things. And um, we, can, we can see how the entrance of sin fractured and ruptured the pure relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. <clears throat> the separation from God affected our human nature, right? And every, it corrupted every dimension of our existence. There's nothing about us that has not been affected by sin, including our reasoning powers, and our capability of understanding. It's all been darkened, you might say, by the existence of sin in the human experience. And so sin has had an extremely disruptive, a disruptive uh, effect on our understanding of God and His will. Now, what are some of these effects that sin has brought into the human experience and, how, and, and in a way that they disrupt our ability to know God's will? 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? Pride is perhaps the foremost of those sins that have intervened between us and God. We know that that was how sin began, right? In the, in the, in the uh, origin of sin with Lucifer. Pride leads to wrong teaching and sinful deeds. We can read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 and 4. And Ellen White says in the 7th volume of the Testimonies, page 199 to 200, the sin that is most nearly hopeless and incurable. The sin that is most nearly hopeless and incurable is pride of opinion and self-conceit. This stands in the way of all growth. So, you see that Pride is one of those major things that inhibits our ability to understand God's Word and to grow in Him. And, uh, but it's not the only one. As we go on, we see self-deception. Remember Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Right? Jeremiah 17.9 As sinners, we are prone to listen to only those things which we want to hear. Um, Paul said the time would come in the, in the last days when people would have itching ears, right? <clears throat> and, uh, and he was trying to describe a time when people would flock to religious teachers that would teach them the things they wanted to hear. And it's, it's probably not only characteristic of the last days. It's human nature. We like to be deceived in certain areas. We don't want to be undeceived. And so um, this is one of the difficulties that the Holy Spirit has to work through. It's the Holy Spirit's job to break through self-deception, to reveal our true selves to ourselves, 
to show us those things which we don't want to know or don't want to understand. And yet there's, there's a part that we have to play in that as well. Doubt. Doubt means to waver in one's opinion, to be undecided about the truth of something. Um, doubt, as a part of critical methodology, diminishes the convicting power of the Word of God and reduces our, or eliminates the life of faith. Um, when we approach Scripture with the methodology of doubt, to critique it, to see if we're going to believe it or not, we come from a very disadvantaged point, a viewpoint. Because the Bible, um, the Bible is really the most plain to the person with faith. The opposite of doubt, right? And so, um, uncertainty spreads also to new revelation of truth. <clears throat> if we doubt one truth, we're going to be more likely to doubt another truth. Jesus taught that in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. And uh, doubt and skepticism also elevates our minds, the students' minds, above the Word of God, right? And uh, places us as the judge over whether the Bible is accurate or true or not. Excuse me. For those who are just joining us, welcome. Um, this is not my normal voice. Uh, can you hear me and understand okay? I'm hoping that my voice lasts through the seminars, but I'm fighting some, some bug. Here we find Ellen White's um, comment on doubt. <clears throat> Men should let God take care of his own book, his living oracles, as he has done for ages. They begin to question some parts of Revelation and pick flaws in the apparent consistencies of this statement and that statement. Beginning at Genesis... They give up that which they deem questionable, and their minds lead on. For Satan will lead to any length they may follow in their criticism, and they see something to doubt in the whole Scriptures. <clears throat> their, facu their faculties of criticism become sharpened by exercise, and they can rest on nothing with a certainty. You try to reason with these men, but your time is lost. They will exercise their power of ridicule even upon the Bible. They even become mockers. And they would be astonished if you put it to them in that light. And that usually doesn't happen overnight. You know, that process of doubt usually is something that grows because doubt leads to further doubt and uncertainty. And so, um, again, it all has to do with our understanding of Revelation inspiration and whether or not we have faith that the Bible is indeed the revealed Word of God. It's trustworthy and reliable. So moving on, <clears throat> another of, of the effects of sin on biblical interpretation is distance and distortion. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 describes how our sins and iniquities have separated us from God, right? And uh, the distance sin brings leads to a distortion of our understanding of the character of God. The, the more our understanding of the character of God is distorted, the more difficult it is for us to understand His Word. Does that make sense? So some people with a certain view of the character of God, they read a passage, and they're going to read it totally different than I or you might read it, with a different view of the character of God. The, uh, the classic example might just be simply the whole Old Testament. You know, is the Old Testament the record of a tyrannical, um, despotical 
a cruel God who delights in wars and bloodshed? We don't see it that way. We can find in the Old Testament grace over and over and over again, right? Some people accuse Adventists of not believing in grace. And I, I, you know, I think that one of our early, uh, early Adventist evangelists, I don't remember who it was now, but he, he would say when he discussed with folks, he said, no, Adventists believe in three times more grace. We believe in 6,000 years of grace instead of 2,000 years of grace. And um, indeed it's true. But a lot of that is because of the presupposition that a, a reader brings, coming to the Bible with a certain view of the character of God. Again, this is the distance and distortion that sin brings. Then we look also at disobedience. Deliberate sin. What did I say? Deliberate sin is an effective barrier against knowing God's truth. Psalm 66 verse 18 tells us, If we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Right? So by refusing to admit that we need to learn new things from God's Word, we become resistant to the spiritual truths which we are avoiding. A persistent opposition to it, a resistance to God's revealed truth, leads us to come to the point where we really don't see it or hear it that way anymore. It reminds me of a statement. It's found in the book Testimonies to Ministers now. Um, but it was originally in the Great Controversy. The original version of the Great Controversy was intended for an Adventist audience. You know, the 1884 um, edition. And um, before the Conflict of the Ages was packaged as a book to be taken to the world. A, book, a set of books to be taken to the world. The Great Controversy that was published in 1884 was four volumes. And it began with the origin of sin, like Patriarchs and Prophets. And it ended with the end of sin, like Great Controversy. But it was Great Controversy, Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, and Volume 4. And um, in that first printing of the Great Controversy, there's a, there's a chapter, well, it's in the last, it's in Great Controversy still, but it's called The Snares of Satan. You ever read that chapter? In the 1884 edition, there was a whole section, multiple pages, of Satan talking to his angels. And um, this is something that Ellen White saw in vision. She records his discussion as to how they will deceive the people of God. And uh, the, the, the paragraph that really stands out the most to me is she, he says that he's speaking, this is Satan speaking, he says, we will lead those who are um, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God to lead others into their snare. They will be effective decoys because they profess the same faith. This is among Adventists. And... Um, he talks about how they will come as uh, they will conform to the to the world because they don't want to be more they don't want to be different than the world around them, and um, in so doing they will separate themselves from God. And she, he says that what, what sticks out in my mind is that ere long they will come to ridicule their former zeal and devotion. Amazing, amazing! A person can go from conviction on an area of their life, to making fun of it. And I've seen it happen, friends. Like, these aren't just idle words. I've seen it happen. So, um, disobedience to the Word of God will lead us to actually come to the point where we're unable to hear and properly understand the Word of God. And like the 
Pharisees of old, we may become, we may come to the point where we begin to call sin righteousness and righteousness sin, light darkness and darkness light. And this is the process of the unpardonable sin. You understand? It's not that God doesn't want to forgive anyone, but it comes to the point where they can't see it. They've convinced themselves otherwise. So, on the other hand, those are sort of the negative, right? The negative presuppositions. On the other hand, let's look at the positive side of what we need to bring to the Word of God. The ideal starting point for studying the Word of God is an open mind. I didn't say an empty mind, did I? But an open mind. There is a difference. Openness and honesty. Ellen White says this, In your study of the Word, lay at the door of investigation your preconceived opinions and your hereditary and cultivated ideas. You will never reach the truth if you study the Scriptures to vindicate your own ideas. Leave these at the door, and with a contrite heart, go on to hear what the Lord has to say to you. If, as you read, conviction comes, and you see that your cherished opinions are not in harmony with the Word, do not try to make the Word fit these opinions. Make your opinions fit the Word. That's easier said than done sometimes, isn't it? But that's the openness and honesty with which we must approach the Scriptures. Sometimes we have to just be willing to say, I was wrong. Willing to learn. And um, this, is, this is what we need if we want to understand the Word of God. The second necessary attitude or presupposition is faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is what? Impossible to, impossible to please God. While Scripture could be read by, like just any other book, just as literature... It cannot be understood correctly in the biblical sense without faith. Because the subject matter of the Bible, which is God Himself, is only spiritually discerned. And it requires faith to be able to understand. You remember that after the resurrection, Jesus rebuked the disciples on the road to Emmaus for being foolish and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, Luke 24, 25. Lack of faith tends to a deficient understanding of Scripture. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> I suppose if the apostles, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, had had enough faith in Jesus, instead of being so downcast and dejected, they would have been, in fact, searching the Scriptures to find what they misunderstood. Right? Instead, Jesus had to open it to them. And thankfully, God is merciful with us in our lack of faith. Isn't that... Um, aren't we thankful for that mercy? I'm very grateful that God is, is so faithful to us. A third necessary attitude and presupposition would be humility. And um, this is probably closely related to the first, isn't it? Openness and honesty. The attitude of humility expresses the willingness and modesty to submit one's beliefs to a higher authority. And um, again our presuppositions about revelation inspiration are going to affect whether we submit ourselves to the Word of God. Because if we have a different view of revelation inspiration that sees the Bible as simply a human record of divine human encounters, then we are going to keep our mind above the Bible, critiquing whether we believe this or not, or whether it's our experience or not. You see? But if our understanding of the Word of God is that it is the inspired Word of God, and it is, it is to be our minds are the ones to be held subject to the Word of God, 
It completely changes the way we approach the Word of God. We can approach it then with humility. Openness and honesty, faith and humility as well. Again, from the spirit of prophecy, God desires man to exercise his reasoning powers. And the study of the Bible will strengthen and elevate the mind as no other study can. How do you like that? You want to be a better student? want to have better intellect? Um, The Bible is the best book to spend your time exploring and trying to understand. Yet we are to beware of deifying reason, which is subject to the weakness and infirmity of humanity. If we would not have the Scriptures clouded to our understanding so that the plainest truths shall not be comprehended, we must have the simplicity and faith of a little child ready to learn and beseeching the aid of the Holy Spirit, a sense of the power and wisdom of God and of our inability to comprehend His greatness should inspire us with humility. and We should open His Word as we would enter His presence with holy awe. That's pretty, pretty, profound, pretty profound, isn't it? When we come to the Bible, reason must acknowledge an authority superior to itself and heart and intellect must bow to the great I am. It's a wonderful passage there in Steps to Christ, page 109-110. And so, this attitude of humility with which we approach the Bible is absolutely essential if we would be able to subject our minds to the Word of God and come to an understanding of truth. You know, we all have areas in which we are blind, right? We all have areas of self-deceit, I guess you might say. And so, um, sometimes it's easier for us to, be, to see the, the blind spots in other people's thinking. <laughs> and um, God has patience with us. We should have patience with each other too. But, you know, when you, when, you, when you start realizing these presuppositions, when you start recognizing, when you hear someone who's saying, well, I, I don't think that the Bible could be right on this point because of X, Y, and Z. When you start saying something like, when you start hearing something like, well, the Bible only said that because it reflected the culture of the times. And today we live in this culture, which is very different, and so that doesn't really apply. And that can be said about a whole lot of things. Um, homosexuality and, and um, a lot of moral issues even. Um, that, that argument is made by Christians, by Adventist Christians. Um, once again, you've placed yourself by this culturalization of the Bible, you've placed yourself in a position where you are choosing now which of the things are still applicable and which are not. Which of the things... Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't interpret. You know, I'm not saying that there's not need for a cultural understanding. Um, but divine truth revealed in the Word of God is not simply a cultural expression, a human expression of, of that culture. So, let's move on. Whoever wants to understand the Bible, even God, the world, and oneself, has to allow Scripture to be given normative priority over one's own experience, experiences and assessments. Does that make sense? That's, that's what I mean when I say humility. Obedience. John seven seventeen, Jesus says, If any man will, know my, uh, will do my will, he shall know of my doctrine, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, there is a direct relationship between obedience and understanding the Bible. 
It's a biblical principle that as we respond to light, we will have more light to walk in. Um, Jesus even says, what is it, John chapter 3, walk in the light while you have the light, right? Light is not stationary. Light has progress attached to it. And so if you want to stay in the light, you can't stay where you're at. You have to obey what you know and continue learning and growing. We can read that also in Psalm 119, verse 100. Another necessary attitude and presupposition is love. Talked a little bit about that here just a minute ago when we talk about um, you cannot love God wholeheartedly and criticize the God of the Bible, critique Him. It, it, I think the, the very transformative nature of love leads us to approach the Bible with a different attitude. Um, and finally, not last, not least, but perhaps last in this list, is prayer. Prayer is essential to the study of the Word of God. And we see a number of examples of that. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 6. When Daniel prays, he's given understanding of the will of God. In Psalm 119, David prays, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of thy law. Through prayer, we also acknowledge the need for God's Holy Spirit to help us understand what He has inspired. There's a couple other major historical principles that we come to the interpretation of the Bible with. Sola Scriptura, you're familiar with that if you studied Protestant history, right? This was the um, great cry, rallying cry of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, uh, by Scripture alone. Uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. And um, this is another key, especially when we talk about prophetic interpretation. Um, Scripture interprets Scripture. And the Scripture is sufficient. There's enough information in the Bible for us to have an understanding of the truth, arrive at an understanding of the truth, have a relationship with Jesus, and be saved for eternity. We don't need other dogma, other traditions, other sources of inspiration or of, of creeds, whatever it may be. Scripture is sufficient. Um, um, as, as Paul would tell Timothy, um, they're sufficient to make thee wise unto salvation, right? And um, that's such a, a comforting thought. Another uh, major hermeneutical principle is the unity of Scripture. The Bible agrees with itself. And this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to have a, a, an overarching understanding of Scripture. You know, we can, I, I've, I've met some people that are really sort of worried about how do we study the Bible? How do we study you know, certain passages we don't understand? Well, we'll give you some of those tools here um, tomorrow, particularly if you're here. But, I'm here to tell you that just start reading the Bible. That hermeneutical spiral will take effect. If you just start reading the Bible, the more you immerse your Bible in the Word of God, the more you begin to, your mind opens to the things of God, the more your presuppositions and biases become aligned with the mind of God, the easier it is for you to understand the Bible. And you will move on from milk to meat without even hardly realizing it. You know? So I don't, I, you know, just start reading the Bible. Simple. Um, feed your mind with the Word of God. And um, there's various ways that you can, you can do that. That means that all of Scripture must be taken into account. We don't, we don't just study one passage of the Bible and build a doctrine on that, because the Bible all agrees. So, as we take all of Scripture into consideration, um, we have a better understanding of what is going on. The context of the biblical passage, very important. And um, I like to say... Um, the context of a passage may be the surrounding verses, 
It extends also to the surrounding chapters. It extends to the whole book, what the theme of the book is, what the audience of the book is, what the culture of the book was in. It extends really to the whole Bible. And ultimately, as Adventists, we have the, the, the ultimate context, that's the great controversy. And understand the great controversy gives us context for the Word of God. And so, if you, you know, if you think you've matched the, uh, your interpretation of a text with the immediate verses around it, but it makes no sense in the great controversy, it makes no sense in the, uh, the message of God for this time, then it probably isn't actually a correct understanding. Now, I want to talk about this, um, and we'll, we'll, then we'll move into a little bit of... Um, a little more of uh, the history of interpretation. This is going to be important. Great controversy, excuse me. Pages 598 and 599 says, The language of the Bible should be interpreted according to its obvious meaning. It's what? Obvious, obvious meaning. Unless a symbol or figure is employed. And um, this is something that sometimes we have a hard time with because... We, the obvious meaning can be a little boring. <laughs> and so sometimes we get a little inventive. And um, we want to find, up, uh, find a, a, another uh, meaning to the passage. And, but my point is here that uninspired interpreters, and that's you and me, I'm, I'm not to say the Holy Spirit doesn't light, lead us, right? But we're not given the gift of prophecy. That's what I mean. Uninspired interpreters are not given the right or the authority to determine which stories in the Bible may be made into types of the last days or of any other time in, in human history, or which stories may be made allegorical. And uh, the main interpretation or the understanding of them is seen to be um, somehow spiritualized or mystical, prophetic or analogical. We don't have that responsibility. Now, the Bible authors do. The Bible authors and prophets of every, of every age have taken stories that were familiar stories from the past history and have used them to illustrate what's coming in the future, right? We have, for example, the Elijah movement that's supposed to be the last days. Malachi mentions it. Jesus certainly talked about it. John the Baptist, I think, understood it. The idea is that Elijah becomes a type of those living in the last generation. So therefore, we can, with prophets, study the life of Elijah and learn an awful lot about what's going to happen in the last days. Okay? Um, but I don't have the right to assume that some other Bible character has now become a type of the last days and, I can, and, and you know, match all the events or teachings or circumstances of his life with what I predict is going to happen in the future. Um, the problem with that is it's simply a private interpretation. Um, it's not what the obvious meaning of the passage is. The obvious meaning of the passage is a story. And so we're going to talk more about that um, in our next period. But right now, we're going to switch gears a little bit. And we're going to talk some about the history of um, biblical interpretation. So if you can just bear with me here. Um, and hopefully, we'll see how far we get here. Um, this is very interesting, at least if you, if you have an interest in history. Hopefully, someone here does. Um, <clears throat> if we look at the the first period, and, and this is really where Christian interpretation history begins, um, we're going to begin to see some of the things we've just been talking about. We're going to be able to see some of the presuppositions they come to the Word of God with. 
And where did early Christian, and some of the early Christian interpreters, get their presuppositions? They got it from the Jewish world. And because many of them were Jewish, right? Many of the Christian church essentially emerged from within Judaism uh, initially. Um, and so what we see is during the time of the apostles, there were certain trends in biblical interpretation among the Jewish world that would have an effect on the early church, um, particularly after the apostles died, um, that would lead them to interpret the Bible in a certain manner. You remember Paul tells those in Thessalonica, Thessalonica that there was the spirit of Antichrist was already at work. Um, the seeds of what would become the apostasy were already planted, even in Paul's day. And so, um, Philo of Alexandria is probably one of the um, most f- um, familiar of the Jewish interpreters, and he used allegory with great force um, um, compared to the timid use of such hermeneutics by many of his contemporaries. Most of those in his age did not use allegory so much um, because there was the more conservative Jews who would be offended, and uh, you know they didn't want to run that political risk. Um, according to Philo, the trees of knowledge of uh, and of life in Eden did not actually exist, but were symbols. Just as the first serpent, according to Philo, who uh, seduced Eve, was a symbol of lust. Philo taught that whenever a text presented difficulties, made no sense or contradicted itself or other parts of the Scripture, it was unworthy of Scripture, or was unworthy of Scripture, the literal meaning should be given up for an allegorical interpretation. He called this the laws of allegory. Well, you can imagine quite a few passages became allegorical, right? Particularly, you know, maybe it's not hard for me to interpret, but we disagree on the interpretation of it, so it must just be allegorical. We can agree on an allegory. Um, Probably not too likely. The result was that very few of the biblical stories were retained in Philo's commentaries. Almost everything became spiritualized and allegorized in a philosophical language which appealed to the Greek mind, the Hellenistic world. It took centuries for the church to recover from Philo's influence. Now, this is not even, this is prior to Christianity or prior to these concepts being taken into into Christianity. In the early and medieval church, um, Clement wrote to the Corinthian church as early as 95 AD, appealing to Scripture as the basis for his exhortations to unity and so forth and so on. We see Christian sources and extra-Christian sources. I'm going to skip down here because we want to get to some of the interpretive methods. Arrhenius, Arrhenius, the uh, disciple of Polycarp um, in the 2nd century, allegorizes the law of clean and unclean animals as referring to people. And um, this is how he saw it. Now, some of you are going to smile as we go through some of this history. But this is real history, guys. This is the intellectual world. These are the scholars of their day. These are the people who were showing other people how to interpret the Bible, okay? And these are the trends that were set. And you're going to see, I mean, as, as, as laughable as some of them may be, they're, they're remarkably replicated even down to our day. So don't get too, don't get too excited about, about them. The clean animals are the Christians who make their way steadily towards the Father and the Son, which means they have a divided hoof, I guess, Father, Son. And also meditate day and night upon the words of God, they chew the cud. See? Very clear. In the Word of God. That's what a, a, a clean and unclean person is. Um, and an unclean person, there are three classes of unclean persons. There are Gentiles, 
who neither make their way steadily towards the Father and the Son, nor meditate upon the words of God. There are Jews who chew the cud, but they lack the uh, uh, divided hoof because they just go towards the Father, not the Son, you know. And then there are the heretics who don't chew the cud, but have the divided hoof. And so this is, this is um, Irenaeus's allegorization of the scriptures. You see how when you move away from the literal meaning of the word of God, how far you can get. Now, we're not finished yet. We move on and we see how uh, Barnabas, about 130 AD, tried to imitate Paul's use of allegorization in Galatians 4. Remember with uh, Jerusalem and above and beneath and Hagar and Sir and so forth. But differed from Paul's methodology in two ways. First of all, he allegorizes profusely. The Bible writers don't allegorize profusely. They have limited allegories or passages which they choose to make allegorical. Um, and his kind of allegorization is such as to deny or at least minimize the original intent of the scriptures. Um, not surprising. By the way, you know, some of these early church fathers were among the first to, for example, um, uh, argue against the... Uh, keeping of the Ten Commandments and Seventh-day Sabbath and so forth. It's not too surprising um, when you look at their presuppositions with which they came to the Word of God. Origen was probably the one that um, made the most progress in the development of hermeneutics. Um, I would consider it negative progress, but he moved a long ways. Origen developed a threefold interpretation of Scripture, um, which would later become fourfold. Um, scriptures is comparable to body, soul, and spirit, um, in the human being and following the Greek understanding of the person uh, the body is the, the least respectable right? matter is viewed in a negative light in the Platonic worldview and so the, the, the corporal or literal meaning was the least desirable Le- reading the Bible literally in this Greek way of looking at scripture as being divided into three meanings Literal, spiritual, and somehow metaphysical is um, the the literal was the least desirable, the least um, emphasized. And scriptures uh, actually were not that inspired. According to Origen, scriptures recorded things that sometimes did not take place, sometimes what could have not happened, and sometimes what could have happened but did not. And um, so it, it, well, he didn't even see the Bible as it being at all. Um, historically accurate or dependable. Now, Origen's views were not universally accepted, but they were influential in the hermeneutics of his day and in interpretive practices. Origen's threefold interpretation was later expanded to a fourfold one: uh, literal, allegorical, tropological, from a from a heavenly, uh, out of world type uh, perspective, and anagogical. And so, you know, this is, this becomes a, a a game, basically, an intellectual game of one-upmanship, to try to read the passage. I mean, anyone can read the literal passage, right? You don't have to be an intellectual philosopher to do that. But to come, out, come up with a somehow sort of a cohesive, coherent, and sensible, um, not one interpretation of that passage, but four separate interpretations. From this sense, it means this. From this sense, it means that. From another sense, it means this. That became the challenge for interpreters of this day. And, and, and frankly... There, was, uh, there, were, there were many, many centuries of Christianity when this was the approach that was taken to Scripture. 
And it wasn't always just four. I've read of six or seven different interpretations that each text would be given. Each, test, each text would, be, would have these, uh, these um, attached to it. Um, so, when we, when we look at Martin Luther's early lectures in Wittenberg, he was using these principles. That's the way he was trained. That was the classical theology, even at the time of the 16th century. But um, he would later reject these methods as he began to understand the Bible is to be taken literally. The language of the Bible is to be interpreted according to its obvious meaning, as Ellen White said, unless a figure or symbol is obviously employed. So, Augustine also um, uh, was, was very, um, was very uh, influential in his understanding of the or his interpretation of the scripture, he's probably one of the most influential theologians of all time. And Augustine, for example, his millennial views, you're probably familiar with that. Um, he believed that the end of the world, or not the end of the world, but he believed that the thousand years of Revelation 20 was symbolically taking place in the spiritual sense from the time that Christ died in the apostolic age until the end of the first millennium. And so he predicted that, um, that there would be the release of Satan from the bottomless pit, after um, Y1K. And so there was a great Y1K scare. And uh, people committed suicide, supposedly, because if the world was this bad without Satan, I mean, it was going to be really bad off when Satan was loosed from his, um, from his prison. Now again, this was, an, this was because of, of Augustine's um, allegorical placement of the prophecies. Um, so, during the Middle Ages, this is the environment in which the Bible was being approached. It was the most studied book. There was a, um, uh, a period of transition from, uh, to where less and less theology was based upon uh, biblical interpretation. Um, at least four up to seven meanings would be sought in every text. And all things were considered to have sacramental significance that leads to God. So, this is, this is the way a Scripture was approached during the Middle Ages. And, of course, we're going to just skip down through some of these medieval interpreters, given examples, interesting history, but we don't have time today. Biblical authority in Reformation times. The Reformation really began to change drastically the way the Bible is approached in the Christian world. Um, by the time the Reformation came along, the, the authority of the Bible had become so minimized by these interpretive methods that no one was paying much attention to it anymore. I mean, why bother, you know? I mean, everyone's already thought of all the seven different interpretations they could ever think of. And, um, and they didn't really mean anything to us because, because they didn't have force um, in the Word of God. Most of the Bibles had uh, more commentary than they did text, you know. Um, uh, are you familiar with the practice of glossing, as they would say in, in, the, in the old manuscripts? They would write commentary sort of like between the lines, they would write commentary. I guess it's where we get the word glossary from today, too. But a, a gloss would be the commentary that would be between the lines of the texts. And so they would write um, in these old, you know, hand-copied manuscripts before the printing press, they would write these, um, these different interpretations along. You can imagine, sort of like we write in the margins of our Bible. Well, the time would come when you couldn't read the text anymore. I mean, all you could read was the glosses. All you could read was the commentary with these multiple definitions or interpretations. Luther um, brought a change to the, uh, to the way Scripture was read. 
he, um, he says, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. What was, what was he standing upon? He says, I am bound by scriptures. Well, this was a novel concept. Scriptures have become so muddied by these multiple interpretations that tradition and the, uni- the, the uh, corporate aggregate voice of the church was far more clear than the conscience of a single individual reading the scriptures. It was, it was, it was mind-blowing to the papists that a person could have the audacity to think that the scriptures could possibly lead one person to stand against the whole church. Now, in our worldview, this is not a new concept. But for them, this was, this was beyond, beyond really comprehension. Because the, the authority of the scriptures had become so minimized during the Middle Ages that it was much safer in their mind to trust the, the broader understanding of the United Church and of the uh, tradition, which tradition is nothing but the church over many years, right? That's many of God's people, the way they saw it for the last thousand years. The longer the tradition goes, the more people it's behind it, and it must be more and more certain. And you can understand. I mean, if you take away the Bible, what else do you go by, right? And I, I really want to underscore this, because today when we look at the, uh, the interpretive methods, and this isn't just, this isn't just some left-wing you know, way out there type of people that do this. There's a temptation, even within conservative Adventism, to start putting creative interpretations upon scriptures which aren't really there. And God bless them. I'm not, I'm not here, you know, I wouldn't... Most, most of them are teaching truth. But teaching truth with the wrong methods is a little dangerous because you can just as easily teach error with the wrong methods. You see? So how we approach the Bible is very important. Um, Luther would change that. Jean Collet um, caught from Italy the renewed emphasis. As he went down south to study in Italy, uh, you know, after the, the fall of Constantinople in 1453, um, to the Turks, the, um, the Eastern scholars, many of them Christian scholars, Orthodox scholars, they came over to the Christian side and um, with them came the understanding of the original languages. And uh, this, this began this um, explosion of the study of the original text, which we talk about as being the, the beginning of the Bible translations and so forth and so on. So, John returns to England, begins giving a series of lectures on Paul's epistles with a focus on making the passage, meaning of the passages practical to the lives of his listeners. Erasmus attended Colet's lectures and took up biblical studies. He came out with his Greek New Testament in 1516. Um, his, his collation of the manuscripts would become the foundation for the Protestant Bible. And so it's very important in, in biblical history. After the Diet of Worms, a Luther at the Wartburg Castle translated Erasmus's New Testament into German in 11 weeks. And um, the new approach these men more, took more closely followed that of the early church expositors in the New Testament. Now, once again, they were looking at the Bible for what it really said, not some secret hidden meaning 
that God would uh, wanted us to try to 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 find. And this this is this began the the Reformation, and um, uh, and um, and they replaced the fourfold exegetical system of hermeneutics and replaced it with a literal principle of interpretation. The T- Council of Trent, of course, you're familiar with, April 8, 1546, the fourth session decreed concerning the Bible, seeing the scriptures and ecclesiastical tradition be received and venerated with an equal affection of piety and reverence. So um, this is the parting of the ways as it comes to the approach to the scriptures. The Catholic Church decided, because it was divided. The Catholic Church prior to this, there was a large movement. You know, the, the, Pro- the Protestant reformers were called that because they started out to reform the church, not to leave the church, right? And um, the Catholic Church eventually debated among themselves to the point where they said that tradition is of equal value with the Bible and should be given preference. Latin Vulgate was their manuscript of choice. At Worms, Luther not only uh, said, unless I am convinced by testimony from scriptures, but also added or evident reason. And here he's not talking about evident reason from simply a philosophical point of view. He's talking about evident reason from the scriptures, from the Bible. Correct reason is bound by the word and enlightened by faith and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And so we move quickly down through this, um, this experience. Luther himself would experience this um, salvation which comes only by grace. You remember the story at the, the Scala Santa, the the holy steps there in Rome, across the street from the, from the, the church of St. John of Lateran, you, you find these stairs where still today, after work, when the rush hour crowds are, are filling the streets of Rome, there are those who are, are crawling up the stairs on their hands and knees. And um, Luther was there, and he hears a voice, as it were, saying, the just shall live by faith. And the meaning of the verse. The literal meaning of the verse, right? The just shall live by faith. Came home to his heart. And he began his journey away from Rome. He stood up, walked out of Rome, he left it in his heart as well. And uh, the Reformation was born. Well, we're going to need to take a break here. I've actually run over. I wasn't watching the time. And so, um, we're scheduled with a five-minute break. Can we do that? Or close to it? When we come back, we're going to finish our brief overview of hermeneutical history. And we're going to talk, we're going to look at some passages and examine different approaches. I want to especially talk about a literal versus an allegorical interpretation, okay, in our next time together. So I want you to be able to clearly see what the difference is. Because this has been a real plague spot for biblical interpretation when we look at history. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer and then take a five minute break. Father, please be with us. As we continue to study, thank you for giving um, me voice to speak during this hour. And um, I just pray that you'll be uh, with us as we seek to become better students of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.